near the front. Do you know why? Because he's always up the back, hard at work in the sound booth. I think he's done a fantastic job of bringing together everything up the back there. Uh, I had to sit in on Friday and do a few things um, in the sound booth and I figured out just how complicated things are. And so it means that he's done a good job and also means he's got a good team. So uh, uh, thanks to our sound technicians. Uh, we appreciate you for making us sound better. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 36 is where we are this morning. When I looked at this um, as a thought, I thought, oh yeah, there's, there's definitely a message in that. And this uh, being the third message shows that I was right, doesn't it? There was more than one message in that. There were three. Isaiah chapter 36, we're going to read verses 1 to 4 by way of introduction. And then we'll get down a little bit later to where we're up to in our exegesis. Isaiah chapter 36 and verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defensed cities of Judah and took them. <clears throat> and the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. We thank you, our Father, for the word of God. We thank you that we can read about an instance that occurred uh, so many years ago and that we can recognize uh, your wisdom in preserving this story for us. And we pray that today you would help us to see, Lord, the things that we can glean. I pray that you would teach our hearts, help us to be teachable. And we pray that you would, uh, Lord, lead us in a stronger position, into a stronger position for our church. And so we commit ourselves to you this morning. We look forward to your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 36, as we've seen, uh, tells us the story of a foreign invader who was seeking to break the spirit of the Jews. Parked outside the walls, he was trying to break their spirits as he laid siege to them as a city. And the idea was to weaken their resolve in order to either trigger a surrender or to make the fighting when it began a lot easier for him. We've spent uh, two messages looking at some of his strategies as he spoke with those ambassadors that came out from Jerusalem. Uh, he has tried to make them feel alone. He has tried to make them feel like failures. Uh, he has tried to intimidate and he has even claimed to be a messenger from God. And so he's grabbing at every strategy he can to try and unsettle the faith that the Jews have in their king and in their God. We've seen how these strategies are also used by people who would seek to topple our trust in, in God. Uh, Christian faith is an inconvenient truth to the world, in the world system. Uh, if you listen to the media commentary, Christianity is the great spoiler of fun. Uh, it offends the supposed freedoms of life and it's a great hindrance to progress. Uh, isn't that against all that we read in history? Those who adhere to other faiths, not just in the world, 
would challenge the doctrinal base of Christianity. So they've got their problems with us. And if you were to ask those who would call themselves militant atheists, they would say that Christianity is not just burdensome, but it's downright dangerous. And it ought to be something that's kicked out of the world. And so whether the, com- whether the uh, opposition comes to us in the form of friendly disagreement, which it often does, uh, whether it's as ridicule or as scorn, whether it's in person, through the media, or via internal doubts, the truth is that our faith is regularly challenged. And I hope that you recognize that. I hope that your faith is outward enough to be regularly challenged. But the challenge in Isaiah chapter 36 turns a corner when we get to verse 11. Notice that with me in Isaiah chapter 36 and verse 11 and 12. Isaiah 36, 11, Then said Eliakim and Shebna and Joah, these are the Jews, unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. And speak not to us in the Jews' language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. They were worried that the people who were on the wall were hearing all of these things that this general was throwing. And so they said, speak to us in the Syrians so that these people don't have to listen. Verse 12, Rabshakeh liked that idea. But Rabshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to speak to thee and to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall? You see, until now, Rabshakeh has been speaking with the envoy in words loud enough for those on the wall to hear. But from verse 13, he takes their concern and he exploits it. And he says, Yes, these people are listening, aren't they? Let me speak to them. And so from verse 13, he directs his challenges directly to those who were stationed on the walls, to the rest of the city who were sitting there listening. He takes the opportunity to try and weasel his way in. In a siege, every person inside those walls is important. If Rabshakeh could cause doubt to sprout in one heart, it might be enough to pass throughout the city. How many people might you need to storm a gate and open just one gate and let the enemy in? And you don't have to conquer the whole city, you've just got to get in with one person and see how you can get that to spread. And I think that brings up an important application for us this morning. How important are you to this church? Perhaps you think that you are insignificant. Perhaps you think that you are just of average importance. And maybe that is reflected in the thought that what I do, or what I think, or how I behave doesn't really affect the church at large. I'm not that important to the church or in the church. Well, Rabshakeh knew that if he could find a weakness on the wall, then he might be able to topple that city more easily or he might be able to get some to come out of the city and to desert Hezekiah and to weaken the resistance. He knew that if he could attack somebody on the wall and find a weakness, he might be able to find a way into the city. Everyone in the church is important because everyone in the church could be the weak point on the wall. Anyone could become that person that allows false doctrine into the church 
or that starts the gossip or that starts the rebellion. Anyone in the church can be that person. In relation to this very thing, Paul warned the Corinthians in that uh, very powerful metaphor, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Just a little bit of yeast in the dough will spread through the whole loaf. And that metaphor was given in relation to, ch- to sin in the church. One person affecting the whole church. And so this morning, as we listen to the message, as we think about these things, we have to remember this fact. No one is insignificant because every single one of us are targets of the enemy. This morning, we're going to look at the final three tactics that Rabshakeh used against those who stood on the wall. And these tactics are tactics for every single person to be aware of. So the next tactic we're going to have a look at is a tactic of insurrection. Let's have a look at verses 13 through to 15. Isaiah chapter 36 and verse 13. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and said, Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Rabshakeh's words are directed, first of all, to, uh, when he's speaking to the people, his words are directed against their king, Hezekiah, the king of the Jews, who, Tofs, is a good king. Remember from Friday night? Yeah, that's right. You won't forget that one. These words came as a message from the Assyrian king, Sennacherib. Rabshakeh conveys them to them. And he says, don't trust in Hezekiah. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, warns you, don't trust in Hezekiah. Don't listen to his his words that say, the Lord will deliver you. Don't be a fool. Let not Hezekiah deceive you. He can't deliver you. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord because Hezekiah's God can't deliver you from my king. And so the challenges were against Hezekiah's person don't trust him, and against his ministry, he can't deliver you from the things that are coming. The Assyrians were trying to create doubt among the Jews and to diminish confidence in their leader. He was banking on that axiom that a house divided against itself will not stand. If he could create fighting within, it would diminish their ability to unite against that common enemy, and he might be able to get in to the city. Now, in terms of application, the church's only king is Jesus Christ. The church's only king is the Lord. No one in a church is to be given the authority that a king in those days was given. Number 10 or 15 years ago, uh, we were dealing with a doctrine called the Mighty Man Covenant. Uh, And it was the idea that no matter what your pastor does, you have to support them. Uh, No matter what they say, no matter what they do, even if it's wicked, you have to do, follow and support everything that they do. 
As you can understand, that's obviously an incorrect way to worship a person. The church's only king is the Lord. And so that needs to be the caveat that you keep in mind through everything else that I say this morning. The church's king is the Lord. But there is absolutely no doubt that the king has placed leaders in the church. Jesus Christ, as the king of the church, has placed leaders in the church. Hebrews chapter 13, if you can turn over there with me, I'm going to show you two verses. And I want you to note that these expressions are not expressions made up by me this morning. They come directly from the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 13 speaks twice of those who teach the word and rule in the church. Not my words, God's words. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, it says, Remember them which have the rule over you. You might think, well, that's probably the government. Well, let's read on. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. That's not the government, is it? <laughs> Whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, considering the results of the kind of life they live. Verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Christ the Lord is King of the church, but the King has placed leaders in the church. And brethren, our faith can be unsettled when there is rebellion against that leadership. It can cause problems for us as a church and as a Christian when our trust in that leadership is diminished. And what I want to make clear this morning is that that trust in leadership is not dependent upon the perfection of the leadership. Hebrews chapter 13 is a call to follow fallible leaders. Now, if I was to challenge you to put together a list of my imperfections this morning, it would be a humbling thing, I'm sure. <laughs> if I was to challenge you to put together a list of imperfections this morning, I could give you pages and pages more of the ones that you've missed. Because I fully understand that as a leader in some capacity in this church, I have many imperfections. But you know what? That's not a credential of leadership to be without fault. But you know, as much as I have... Uh, leadership position in this church when it comes to making the calls and setting the direction pastor mitchell is the senior pastor of our church and that title senior pastor is a title of position not primarily of age the senior pastor of our church it might have something to do with that but um authority and so because he has that position he has a lot of decisions to make and a lot of directions to set. And I, as you, would appreciate his collaborative approach to his leadership, but ultimately, much of the responsibility lies with him. He encourages us by pastoring, by teaching, by his example, to trust in the Lord, much in the same way that Hezekiah had encouraged people to trust 
in their Lord. And I'm thankful that Pastor Mitchell has set a good direction for our church, that he provides a good encouragement for our faith and that he encourages us to trust in the Lord and not upon himself. But you know, when the temptation to complain or to campaign against leadership comes up, we need to remember that that's precisely what the enemy would have us to do. It would be perfect for them if we would fight among ourselves. Just like Hezekiah, the teaching that we receive here exhorts us to trust in the Lord. And we have to be careful how we speak against that. Now, there are many who would discourage us from receiving that teaching. Many who would say, you can't listen to what you get taught in that church because do you know this about that person? (laughs) They try and discredit the channel so that they can discredit the teaching. Don't listen to what that pastor says. He's just too stiff. He's just too legalistic. I'm sure you've heard many, many, many more. Sometimes people would discourage us from trusting in the Lord through what we learn through the messages here by ridiculing the doctrine. I'm sure if you've talked to people from other churches or other places, they would say that your your church teaches what? I can't believe that your church is so strict. It's ridiculous. You know, the fit of our convictions with what everyone else is doing is not the determination of the truth, is it? Uh, The Word of God is to be our foundation and so long as the preaching is foundational upon the Word of God, then it is good teaching. We know that people don't agree with us. We should be well aware of that. We should use the avenues of feedback to leadership when those avenues are necessary and we should use them in the right way and with the right spirit. But we can't, we can't let ourselves become a weak spot on the wall a place where discontent and discord can be sown and sprout into the rest of the church. We have to be on guard against that. And so after casting dispersions against the current king that they had there in Jerusalem, rather conveniently, Rabshakeh presents an alternative to Hezekiah, the king of the Jews. And we see that as we continue on. The second strategy that we're going to look at this morning is the strategy of invitation that Rabshakeh tries to use. It's in verses 16 and 17. Isaiah 36 verses 16 and 17, it says, Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by a present. Come out to me and eat every one of his vine and every one of his fig tree and drink ye every one of the waters of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. And so his his reasoning is quite simple. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Listen to the king of Assyria. He's got a better deal for you. Come out with a gift. Bring a gift out and then you can leave Jerusalem. You can leave those terrible siege conditions. You can go back into your own vineyard. You can grow your grapes. You can harvest your wheat. You can eat your bread. You can rejoice in all that God has given you and everything will be good until the time when I come back and I take you to another fertile land just like this one. Isn't that a beautiful picture that he paints? Rabshakeh invites them to come to the king of Assyria. It's interesting that he does this after applying intimidation, after ridiculing them, 
and after criticizing Hezekiah and Judah, he then gives them the opportunity to jump ship. Okay, because your situation is so bad, so dire, and your leadership is so incompetent, you need to just come out to us and we'll give you a better deal. The alternative looks good in comparison, and this is a form of manipulation and a form of deception. Manipulation because he's used the falsities of his previous arguments to back them into a corner where they've got very little other alternative in his eyes. It's deception because he tries to sugarcoat what is an unpleasant truth. You see, he veils over an Assyrian policy in his answer. The policy of the Assyrians as they conquered a people was to deport some of those people away from their country of birth, deport them and place them in another land. And then he would take some from all different lands that he had conquered and bring them to live in that place instead of the native inhabitants of the land. And in so doing, they would decrease the chances of a united revolt against that new authority. So he conquered uh, land A, land B, land D, uh, land C and land D. Get my alphabet right. <laughs> and then he took some from each of those places, put them all together and placed them in A. Put another group together in B, another group in C, another group in D, so that none of them had a national identity and they were uh, opposed against each other in their customs and often in their religions as well. And it would stop revolt against the oppressor. And this is exactly what they did in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember that the Jews were split or the Israelites were split into two nations. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, we're speaking about a siege against Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom, but the northern kingdom has already been conquered by the Assyrians. We read in 2 Kings, turn over with me, 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 24, we read about this policy in practice. Second Kings chapter 17 and verse 24. It says, And the king of Assyria, that's him, brought men from Babylon, one place he'd conquered, and from Cutha, one place he'd conquered, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sephavim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they, that is those people of those nations, possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so the new inhabitants would have a mixed culture, no united identity, and they mixed with some of the Jews back there in the land of the northern kingdom, who were still in the land, and they became what the Gospels call the Samaritans. And this is why the Jews disliked them so much, because they weren't real Jews. They were a mixed race of all different kinds of people. And this is what Rabshakeh frames in a very positive light. Back there in Isaiah chapter 36 and verse 17, he says, Enjoy your own fig tree, enjoy your own waters of your own cistern, until I come and take you away unto a land like your own, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Uh, he frames deportation 
under an oppressor in the form of, I'm going to send you away to a great land just like this one. It was a deception. It was a way of trying to get the people out without um, totally lying. It reminds us that what people offer us to leave our faith is never as good as what it looks. The best line that the world, the flesh and the devil who are our enemies use is this, nothing much will change. If you choose to do this, or you choose to stop doing this, these things that God has told you to do, this faith that God has called you to, if you stop doing those things, nothing much will change. Have you ever felt that? I wonder if that's what David thought when he called another man's wife to the palace. Nothing much will change. I wonder if that's what Saul thought when he offered a forbidden sacrifice before the Lord when he was impatient for Samuel. Nothing much will change. I wonder if that's what Ananias and Sapphira thought, Sapphira thought when they told a little lie to get away with keeping some of the money. Nothing much will change. And yet it did, didn't it? It's foolish and it's completely ignorant of history to be optimistic about the consequences of sin and the consequences of forsaking faith in God. Those who challenge your trust in God's word and God's church can't be trusted. People who want you to forsake what you believe about God are not people to be relied upon. And we have to get that through our minds. The world who wants to ruin the church is not a world that can be listened to. Their reasoning is not good for us. It's not helpful. And we have to see them as the enemy that they are. This brings us to Rabshakeh's final challenge. His strategy of integration, which we find from verses 18 to verse 20. Isaiah chapter 36, verses 18 to 20. It says, Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sephavaim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are, who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? And so Rabshakeh makes this claim. Your God is just like every other God that we have conquered. Your God is just like every other God. And this switched a, a light bulb on in my mind because I've heard this argument used very recently by uh, those who would call themselves the new atheists. And they use an argument that goes very, very similarly to those lines. They say Christians are atheists. They don't believe in Zeus. They don't believe in Apollo. They don't believe in Allah. They don't believe in Gaia. They don't believe in thousands of gods. Christians are atheists. There's many gods they don't believe in. All the atheist does is go one god further than a Christian. Now these assumptions, the assumptions that are made in that statement cause me just a little bit of righteous indignation. (laughs) 
something that you want to stop and park on and preach on for a long time. But aside from the flawed definition of what an atheist is, an atheist is not determined by how many gods you don't believe in, but by how many gods you do believe in. If you don't believe in a god, you're an atheist. If you do believe in a god, you're a theist, regardless of how many other gods you don't believe in. Don't let them get away with that one. But the statement goes further to make precisely the same assumption that Rabshakeh did. It equates the God of the Bible, the Lord Jehovah, with the gods of the other nations. With all the gods that we've seen throughout history, it says that the God of the Bible is exactly the same as all of the other gods that we see. Therefore, rejecting the God of the Bible is no different to rejecting all of the other gods. Now, if you think about it, logic says that Rabshakeh's arguments were actually in support of the Jews. You think about it for a moment. The Jews didn't believe in a multitude of gods. The Jews were monotheists, weren't they? They believed in one God. And so the more gods the Assyrians defeated, the higher the chances were that the Jews had the right God. See, the Assyrians had already eliminated the God of, the, the God of Sepharvaim. The Assyrians had already eliminated the God of Samaria, the God of all these other regions, and shown that those were not true gods. Therefore, the Jews weren't moved by this statement because they never believed in any of those gods. And this is where the assumption is borne out. Our faith is not in religion. And so when we see religions fail, it doesn't hurt our faith. Because our faith is not in religion. The failure of other religions is evidence of the truth of Christianity because we agree that those religions are failures. When other people say that Christianity will die, just like faith in Hercules. Faith in Jesus is no more than a primitive belief in Hercules. We can say that the failure of all those other religions actually supports our faith. We don't believe in any of those things either. God says in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and beside me there is no God. There is no council of gods. <laughs> Just because you've proved Zeus wrong doesn't mean that you've proved theology wrong. Actually, it means that you've backed up the Bible. Long before an atheist said it, God proclaimed that every other religion is vain. And so getting a run-up at the God of the Bible doesn't help the atheist in any way. The presence of other religions should not shake our faith. And that's something that I've heard many people say. There's just so many religions out there. How can you know that yours is the truth? How can you believe that there is just one? Well, there has to be just one. They all disagree. One of them can only be right. We don't have faith in religion. When we see religions fail, when we see religions start and stop, it shouldn't hinder our faith in the Word of God. 
The question of the reliability of the scripture is another issue that we don't have time for this morning. But the multiplicity of religions is not something against the Christian faith. And so Rabshakeh's onslaught comes to an end. And I think he's just attacked everything he can think of. He's tried the shotgun approach. I'll spread it as wide as I can to try and catch them with one of them. As we've moved through the passage, we haven't been told how the people are coping. Are they intimidated? Are they persuaded? Are they afraid? What's happening out there on the walls? You know, to be honest, it is a bit of a worry for those in church leadership to think, how are the people going? <laughs> how are they coping with those arguments against Christianity? How are they coping with those criticisms against church leadership? How are they coping with the struggles of life that might suggest that God is not good? How is it going out there on the walls? You know, in Isaiah chapter 36 and verse 21, it's not until verse 21 that we find out. We don't find out what's happening out there until verse 21. But when we read it, it's very encouraging. It says in Isaiah chapter 36, verse 21, But they, that's the people, held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was saying, answer him not a word. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> The people were holding firm on the wall. Now, some of them would have been angry. <laughs> some of them would have wanted to argue back at that general out there beyond the walls. And they might have thought that, that was the best way to approach things. Some of them might have been challenged by some of these feelings, but they didn't call back out. No, they all stood their ground, held their peace. Why? Because Hezekiah had said, don't answer, just hold your ground. And so the people said, well, King Hezekiah said that. We trust him. Let's do it. What a relief. All the people were on the same page. You know, that's a wonderful blessing of our church, is that we are on the same page. And people hold fast their loyalty to this church. And it's not the work of people that keeps people here. It's each of our individual faith. It's our trust in God. It's our willingness to submit to God's leaders because we believe in God. That's the strength of our church. It's that even on the farthest reaches of the wall, people know the Bible and people are willing to stand on it. We find in this passage many of the tactics that even modern day critics use to unsettle our faith. But we find nowhere in this passage grounds for abandoning our faith. Nowhere is there a reason for us to give up our faith in God. And so though we find it hard at times, our faith is reasonable. And although it seems that we might fail, our faith can stand up to opposition. Though our faith is under siege, it can endure. And it will if it is in the Lord. But I want to close just by reading something that will help us to put closure on this matter because those who challenge God on the other hand cannot endure and will not endure let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 37 and we'll read verses 36 to 30, 38 because I've had enough of this guy speaking against the God of the Jews we need to see what happened 
Isaiah chapter 37, verses 36 to 38. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. It's 185,000. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. The Jews looked out in the morning and they were all dead. What does that tell you about how much the Jews had done to kill them? Nothing. <laughs> God had fought the battle. Verse 37, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed without most of his army <laughs> and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adralemek, sorry, Adramelech and Shareser, his sons, smote him with the sword and they escaped into the land of Armenia and Ezarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. Isn't that wonderful? As he worshipped in the house of his God, the God of the Jews got through and assassinated him. Rabshakeh wasn't able to get through the walls of Judah, wasn't able to get past and to defeat the Jews, but the Jews' God was able to get all the way back to Assyrian headquarters and put the king to death. Brethren, that's the God that we've got. Now, there are clever arguments against us, but we have the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be in your word today. We thank you, Lord, that we can learn uh, the truth about uh, what we believe. And we pray that you would help us to stand when people would challenge us. And we thank you, Lord, for the reminders of how they do it. We pray that you would bless the rest of our day, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.